we're in a really tough time and people have to think about technology to help them to allow the staff that I'm actually doing or the staff that I've actually got uh, can deliver a lot more for the price that you're paying for them. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Helping create and build someone else's vision is a unique position to take in the hospitality game because most operators are family-run businesses who become jack-of-all-trades to get the engines running in their own venue. But there are some that, after years of running their own business, play a huge role in helping others fulfil their dreams. Craig McIndoe is the owner of Darling Crackles. Craig, how are you? I'm very good. And you, Huck? I'm good, mate. It's good to get you on the show. Um, we've both been around for a little while and you've done many things. Um, what, what, tell us about that transition from owning your own venues into sort of helping people create their own. Well, I mean, it's always been something that I've, uh, I think the real transition happened sort of, I, I think I remember this, I had this moment, I was, I think, 42 and I'd just done a 14-hour shift where I'd basically been to the markets in the morning and I was finishing up at night. At, this is when I owned Moo um, Moo Grill and I just was, and I had three kids and I just was thinking, well, this is just not really sustainable for me, you know, just to be sort of pounding the kitchen the whole time. So um, I initially, when I when I opened Moo Moo Grill, we started and it was like right smack bang into the global financial crisis. So I had uh, everything on the line and I had to learn how to market my own business. And so, and I became really passionate about that. Um, and so two things, the first thing was uh, like I realized that I, the owning my own restaurant and just being there all the time was just not good for my family life. And the second piece was that I just really wanted to help other people. Well, I want to explore sort of all the sort of projects that you do do and, and what that it's like working with different people to sort of build their dreams. But take us back to when you were young. What sort of role did food play in your family growing up? Uh, look, I have this uh, story. My father was like the world's worst barbecuer. In fact, he was legendary for the black sausage. And um, so really you kind of had to learn how to cook because my dad was such a bad cook. So, yeah... <laughs> That's really what our food sort of started in my – my mum was a great experimental cook, but my dad was so bad. So whenever mum was away, you had to uh, sort of learn to cook for yourself because, um, yeah, otherwise you were going to end up with charcoal sausages. What were the first sort of steps into a career in hospitality for you? Well, I started off actually um, – I was a bartender at uh, Minsky's, which I don't know if you know. Um, I was a bartender there when that was a real – um, it was a real sort of pinnacle place. It was Danceteria next door, and it was Minsky's was like this high-end cocktail bar, and we all wore bow ties. And um, yeah, it was—I mean, it was a great place to work. And then I moved on to work for, at Cafe Royale, and that was a fantastic sort of high-end cocktail bar in Neutral Bay. And I ran into the guys from uh, the Hard Rock Cafe of all places, and. Um, when they were coming to Sydney and that was kind of going to be the, the, you know, this amazing place. So I went and saw the general manager of that and he said to me, you'll learn the most about restaurants by going in the kitchen. So I went, so I went, swapped over to the kitchen 
and then I opened the Hard Rock in Sydney, the Hard Rock in Maui, and from there I sort of started doing a bit of consulting. I opened, um, and then I sort of started working in sort of various smaller places. But then I opened Kingsley's Australian Steakhouse, and you know built myself a little bit of a consulting career. You know, I'm sort of missing a few bits, but I've owned uh, the tasting room and um, I've owned catering companies and had Moomoo Grill and the Barking Frog and, yeah, a whole lot of different venues along the way. Well, let's go back a bit. Take us to the Hard Rock. Like, do you have any stories? I remember when that opened and what Sydney was like at that time. Do you have any stories of, of the challenges and what that was like? Well, I think... The challenges for that was that it was just always an American brand coming into Australia. So, I mean, apart from just having hundreds of staff that they had to employ, I think the uh, the only real challenges for them was that they were trying to work out, okay, how do you make a hospitality venue work in, well, in Crown Street, right? It was like this kind of, when, when it opened, I, th- I, th- I remember thinking, oh, my God, like, how how is this going to work? It was like right on Crown Street, there was no parking, Anyway, I mean, it had a few really good, um, really good moments, and uh, we had um, we had a great, great times there growing up. I mean, I, I remember I had a five bedroom house in Bondi, and I think we had fourteen people living in it, just all staff from staff from you know the Hard Rock, and so it was yeah. And I travelled around the world the Hard Rock, so it was yeah, it was fantastic. Fantastic. Um, you kind of briefly mentioned some of the businesses that you have opened from um, New Orleans Cafe to Moomoo Grill and, and the tasting room in the Cross. Uh, take us back to that. There was a tiny little place in a back street in, on Kellett Street in the Cross. Um, what was it like pulling that together? Well, the tasting room was uh, really interesting because we got um, – it kind of came out of uh, – a consulting job we were doing on a cafe in in Harris Street, and the guy owned a bit of property in um, Kellett Street in Kings Cross, and he owned it with the Master of Arms of the Comancheros, and we didn't know that at the time. So, and he went in. He said, "Oh, look, here's this space, and it's fully fitted out." And so we went in there and decided, "Okay, well, let's do a." Tapas bar, like a little bit of a tapas bar. The tasting plates were really just sort of starting to come to the fore. And we managed to recruit uh, Will Merrick, who now is at um, in uh, Indonesia doing great things. He's got quite a number of venues. Uh, and also James Constantinis, who is, uh, yeah, so he's, I mean, well, he's, he was famously Jimmy the Greek. And he had his... Um, he had a place called Not Water on Sundays. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they're two really talented chefs, and we just had this – and then we had this very talented Spanish bartender, Manuel, and it just ended up being a cocktail bar and tasting room in King's Cross, and it was it was actually a fantastic venue. Like, I really loved it. It was great for your creativity. It was just the real start of that sort of small plates uh, situation. But it was did come with its – um, own set of, I remember going back in there at 6.30 in the morning and the place was still open and, you know, half my staff had, you know, like we're in various states of undress and I had to sort of shut the shut the venue and, <laughs> and kick everybody out. 
I remember we used to uh, we used to open the bar, which was in the back, which had that a door out the back alley, and basically the back alley um, was like an extension of our bar area until you know, like until all hours of the morning. It was yeah, it was a pretty wild, um, pretty wild adventure. You mentioned um, working with Kingsley's and getting um, that off the ground, but you ended up opening your own steakhouse, Moomoo Grill, over on the north side of Sydney. Well, why did you choose that location and, and that sort of idea? Well, at the time, I actually owned uh, New Orleans Cafe. So I owned, I owned New Orleans Cafe for about six years, uh, yeah, maybe six or seven years, and I was always looking for something else, like another venue, and um, that was the Red Centre, I think. Yeah, the Red Centre, which was like a gourmet pizza place. And it was going into, it was being sold. And so I took it over. I really, uh, I mean, at that time I was the president of the Chamber of Commerce of Crow's Nest. I, so I had quite a few connections in Crow's Nest. And so it sort of made sense to have my second, like, you know, a cafe and then a restaurant in Crow's Nest. And I really liked... I really liked um, the whole health aspect of grass-fed beef and I really wanted to champion that and so we did a grass-fed beef steakhouse Um, and, yeah, it was fantastic fun for eight years and then I sold it. Well, I sold it later, but it was just one of those things where for eight or ten years I just... um, I met a a whole lot of great people, um, did some fantastic cooking, like really got into the whole sustainability part of cooking we you know like championed uh producers i got to cook quite a bit with ben cooper from chin chin we used to do single animal dinners um where we would do um you know we'd do like a duck dinner in uh crow's nest and then we'd fly down to melbourne and we'd do the same dinner down and he was the head chef at the time at sonali which was which is um like a big sort of coffee place, but he had a um, he was doing Sonali nights, and so we'd do single animal dinners together. Um, it was right at the start of all that social media stuff, so I got and met I met a whole lot of chefs and people through social media. It was like the start of Twitter and all that sort of stuff. I remember going to he would go to I remember SBS Food put on a thing where um, you met all these people and then you as their Twitter handles, you had no idea what they actually looked like or were, but it was, it was a real, it was really interesting because I would say, oh yeah, I'm, I mean, mine was very simple. I was at Chef Moomoo, so it was a very simple handle, but you know, you had this, that was the rise of the food blogger and the rise of Twitter and, and food social media. So it was a really, it was a really interesting time to own a, a food business. Yeah, the experience of running restaurants, you know, on the north side of Sydney and the south side. And anecdotally, you, there's a lot of talk about the difference between um, the people that live in those areas of Sydney and the restaurant offerings. As someone who's owned up restaurants in both, do you treat the restaurants differently? I think you have to. I think you've got to think about, um, you have to be really careful of where you are and that you're not bringing a, so for example, I mean, I live in Manly now and a lot of people have tried, a lot of high profile people have tried bringing higher, more expensive places into Manly and it just hasn't worked. And and probably, yeah, you've just got to be really wary of your actual locals. So you've got to look after your locals. So you have to actually skew your business towards what's, like for example, Moomoo Grill, 
if we'd had that in the east, would we have had that? It was BYO. We allowed BYO. So um, I don't think you would do that in the east. But, you know, you wouldn't survive in the North Shore without doing BYO. Tell us about that switch you mentioned about, you know, doing 14-hour days and wanting to sort of a change. But how did you make that shift into full-time sort of um, consulting? Well, I, actually, what happened was I... I, I sold my business and I actually had, um, uh, as part of Moomoo Grill, we were part of this sort of group of people who were sort of learning all about databases and um, and social media. And so I had quite a decent following. So my thought was that how I would get out of the steakhouse is I would um, start a home delivery meat business. And so, so I, uh, as I was sort of working out, you know, selling the um, – the steakhouse, I started doing home delivery meat. So I had, I had something like 20,000 people on my database and I ended up with um, I ended up with quite a sort of a, a nice little um, home delivery meat business and then I sold that a year later to a, a butcher, a large butcher. And then I, so I've kind of transitioned out of that and I, so I was working from home and, um, you know, just outsourcing a bit of the, and having outsourcing the butchery and and having to do some of it myself, I had a friend who had a local kitchen, so I could do some of the cooked stuff myself. And then from there, I decided, oh, you know, what am I going to do? And I, a person I know was um, starting up Spice Alley. He was in property, and he said, oh, look, I think we've got we've got a, we've got um, some issues with some of our businesses in Spice Alley, and we're just about to launch a couple of other restaurants. So I went and as a contractor, I did two years opening up Spice Alley, Olio, the um, whole rum store area, um, and you know getting some more venues into Spice Alley. So that was a that was great, and we had some great international chefs that come in. We used to do we used to do uh, four hands dinners where we'd fly, fly in Singaporean Michelin star chefs, and they would cook with um, Lino. Um, who's the head chef of Olio, or they cook with uh, cook with Stanley Wong, who was the head chef of Eastside Gardens. I mean, sorry, Eastside Kitchen at the time. So that was a that was a really great transition because I kind of got to get out of owning my own venue, but I was still running. Well, I mean, I ended up running eighteen businesses for um, the um, for Dr. Quack, who's the owner of um, Spice Alley, and then uh, halfway through that, I was <coughs> I was doing some work with Alex Adams, at uh, and we were doing some secret foodies events, and uh, we had a wine at one of the events, and Alex said, look, you know, you're the smartest guy in, I know in digital media, um, do you want to do a digital agency together? And so I... Um, uh, like you know, the the function ended, and I and I I had a bit of a think about it, and I thought, oh, you know, that that would be fantastic. Anyway, so I rang her up, and then we got together, and you know, her, her moniker is Miss Darlinghurst, and mine is uh, Crackles. So we decided to call ourselves Darling Crackles, and um, we do um, well, we well, we fundamentally do marketing for hospitality venues, but because I've done Spice Alley and I've done so much consulting for other venues. I've actually been, I get picked up a little bit to do op- the opening of food precincts. So I helped um, 
Philip Keir do the opening of Verity Lane Market in Canberra. And oh, I mean, that was a bit of a strange one because we, we, we just started to get um, vendors and then COVID hit. Anyway, it, it, I mean, it seems to be going quite well. And um, Well, tell us a bit about the Verity Lane because for those that have never been to Canberra, it's a very unique proposition in Australia. Yeah, I mean, he he took the... He owns quite a bit of um, what's called the Sydney building in Canberra. Now, the Sydney and Melbourne building are the two oldest buildings in Canberra. And he took an old nightclub and basically hollowed it out and tried to do... Tried to and, and what he does is he actually rents out small kitchens, little 15-square-metre kitchens to different um, chefs, and then he has the bar offering in the middle. And so it's great. It's got a pizza offering, a pasta offering, uh, and then it just rotates. Um, I think it's got Superbow at the moment, but it's, it's done the launch of um, the Inoki Project, which is um, Gerald Ong. Um, and, you know, so it's a great testing ground for chefs and, um, you know, like just to have a look and see if their product is going to move in the market. But it's essentially a massive, a big hall. It was originally going to have a number of different areas, like it was going to have a restaurant upstairs. But I think he's realised that the his best option is to have this big market where you can get your food downstairs and then all the others upstairs, he's got some entertainment and he's just trying to get as many seats in there as possible. When you're trying to help these sort of large precincts get up and running, take, take us through a project and um, how you help put it together. Well, it really depends on what the customer, what like what the client wants. Like, for example, we're doing at the moment, we're doing a place down in Canberra called Tiger Lane. And uh, we got brought on board, well, I got brought on board um, April last year. And at that point, we had a few designs. We had a basic concept, basic sort of layout of, and so I help put the team in place to help deliver it. Um, and, and so in terms of Tiger Lane, what I did was I hired a guy called Biller, who's the ex-GM of Trippus White, to do all the operations and then we happened to be super lucky and we got Sean Presland from the UK and he's going to be the exec chef. We've now got Gerald Ong from... So, yeah, so we do the... Initially, we look at, okay, how is this going to be viable? We do some financial modelling for it. We then work with the designers to make sure operationally it works properly and then we help with whatever the client doesn't can't do themselves so like for example well i mean pretty much in this one we do we do we've done the recruitment we build the tech stack we then advise on the point of sale uh, and the operations and then i obviously outsource the design and marketing to darling crackles and then hopefully it all ends up as a success which so far it has been well let's look at sort of the um, power and effect of marketing for restaurants. How do you um, transfer that to owner operators and for them to get the best out of that? So fundamentally, I think all businesses need to realise that it's all about it's all about your relationship with the customer. So 
it's now a situation where it's reasonably easy to collect a database um, in that you can, you know, if you have an online booking platform, you should be able to take out the data from that. And as long as you keep in regular contact with your clients, either through social media or through database management, then you should be able to make yourself run a successful business. Now, now this, that's all very top level, but if I walk you through it, so um, social media is one of those funny things that everybody is an expert at. And in fact, when I first started Darling Crackles, I was like, I'm not going to, we're not doing organic social media. Um, we're only going to do paid social media. Um, but we get a lot of people who want us to do organic social media, so we do it. But the, but the paid social media is the most powerful. In fact, we have some people who get 27 to 30 times their ad spend. Now, that means, that means we, can, we can create a piece of content, we can push it out and target um, people who have been to our website or people who are likely to eat at our venues and we can, you know, with $1,000 spend a month, we can, you know, get twenty to $30,000 worth of bookings out of it. Now, obviously, there's bits of code that you have to write in it, and that's not easy to do. Um, and then on top of that, you want to try just make sure that you capture people's data so that when they come in to the venue that you capture their email address and so that you can remind them either of birthdays or, or if you're having special events. And that should, if, you, um, if you've got some attractive events, it should drive your business along. Technology for a long time was seen as the enemy of hospitality and a lot of the industry sort of grappled with the introduction of it um, in all facets. Um, do, you, do you still find hurdles in your day-to-day when you're consulting in sort of uh, that technology realm? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, it's. I think we're right on the cusp of actually things being like incredibly, like technology for a long period of time was – you know, you had a point of sale and you were like, okay, right, I've got my point of sale. And then you had a, you know, you had your, um, whatever you were using for your time and attendance, whether it was just a manual sheet or whether it was something like deputy or something like that. And, and now you've got a little bit of AI thrown in and actually a lot of these programs now work together. And I think we're just on the cusp of things being really powerful and actually really delivering some, some real, some real advantages to owning a business. Like um, when I was at um, Moomoo, like you know, you'd have a spreadsheet which you'd have your all your you you like you basically have all your separate programs, and then you'd bring them all into a spreadsheet, and then you would, you know, and then at the end of the week, you, you know, you'd enter them in your accounting program, and you and it was all quite a laborious situation. Whereas now you've got. Um, I mean, we're using a program called Restoke in Tiger Lane where it's all on an iPad. Someone gets their opening checklist. They have to check off all the things and they sign it and bang, it's just in the cloud. And then you scan all your invoices and AI then uploads it to your inventory and then your stock takes. And then if that's um, integrated with your point of sale, it all, you know, then you can actually do a proper stock take. And so all of a sudden you've got a situation where actually the technology is starting to work for you. 
So I think that 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 is going to be incredibly powerful. And then you dovetail onto that things like Canva, um, ChatGPT, um, all those, and um, my guest list and a couple of other programs. And it makes it a whole lot easier for people, owner operators, to actually do it themselves. You know, like a Canva, like uh, when I grew up um, at Moomoo, like doing your own graphic design was just unheard of. And now Canva is so easy. You can, you know, like you can basically just make a sort of template and you can um, you can design stuff really quickly. And then you put a little bit of chat GBT on top of that for like if you're doing your own, um, if you find that you're not really a very good wordsmith and then you can create an EDM in no time flat. The um, list of um, startup businesses that you've helped get off the ground is far too long to sort of go into. But do you have any favourite projects that you've been part of that you can tell us about? Well, I, I loved uh, opening the Hard Rock in Maui. That was fantastic. I don't think I was sober the whole time. <laughs> um, that was, you know, you just get uh, so much. Uh, you just uh, the Americans are just look after the Australians so well over there. So that was fantastic. That was an amazing one. Um, I loved getting Kingsley's off the ground. That was great. Uh, I think probably the tasting room is one of my favourite. Oh, the nun actually the nuns pool down at Shelley Beach was that that was a really that was a husband and wife team and they created a really great um, venue right at the Shelley Beach on, in Cronulla. Um, yeah, they they all have their answers, but Mossy Point. I've just done a consultancy on a kitchen down at a resort down in Mossy Point, which is just um, two hours outside of Canberra, and it's just right next to um, – and they've they basically bought the whole area and then they've created a market garden and they bought the neighbouring um, cattle farm so that they could have their own beef cattle. and So, so there's some really great things. Um, you know, people are really putting some decent money into some fantastic venues. And, of course, Spice Alley. I mean, I love Spice Alley. It's – I mean, it to me was a great design and it's just really, it really is sort of that pinnacle of, at the moment, I think of food precincts. It's kind of, it's quirky because it's got all the old 1800s houses and then it's got the hawker market at the back. I, I mean, I love the just the vibrancy of it. It's all, it's great value. Yeah. COVID uh, was the curveball none of us saw coming and, and, as you know, had a huge impact on the hospitality sector. Given your role in helping so many businesses, what, what are the main uh, pain points that you see in restaurants coming out of that and moving forward? And do you have any solutions for those? I mean, it seems that we're kind of getting to a new normal in terms of like I think at the beginning of this year there was a lot of there was a lot of problems with um, finding good staff. The um, costs of everything were just going haywire. Um, yeah, I mean that that cost volatility must just absolutely kill you because you're sitting there going, oh, you know I can't really charge charge more, but I'm you know all of a sudden I've got a product that I mean we had a cat we had cabbages for forty dollars I think earlier this you know like so there was this yakiniku restaurant we're doing in canberra and you know people are just ordering stuff and you know fruit and vegetables just going up and down that is gotta be killing 
because most venues you you struggle to make a really good living just if everything stays con- con- consistent, right? Um, I don't have a solution for staffing. Just look after your staff, I guess. I mean, I think we're in a real we're in a really tough time, and people have to think about technology to help them. And and sometimes people are going to have to think, oh, you know, I'm going to have to get some QR code ordering, or I'm going to have to make sure that I really invest in my technology to allow the staff that I'm actually doing or the staff that I've actually got uh, can deliver a lot more, um, you know, for the price that you're paying for them. I mean, I think there's a mass. I think we've got a massive thing coming in robotics. So there'll be a lot of uh, pre-top veggies, um, um, pre-done food, like basically pre pre-done food, and then there'll be there'll be a I think there'll be a shift in um, you know people in uh, robotics in the kitchen. I mean, there's an incredible shift in technology in the kitchen, which has been fantastic, like sous vide, all your um, uh, programmable ovens, your um, you know like all that sort of stuff is just amazing. Your thermomixers, your you know, so you've been able to, you can make now what you never could make before. And so you've just got to be clever about that. There've been a lot of uh, restaurant precincts open in the last decade in sort of the capitals across the country. Um, what's important in getting a, a precinct right? I think your, um, I think the thing that you have to get the right mix of, you have to get the right mix of theatre and seats so or sorry theater and seats seats because so for example you look at something like spice alley we were very focused initially on the theater of spice alley but yet when that's our number what was our number one complaint was the amount of seats so you've kind of got to get this you've got to get the right balance between the theatre you have there, like you can have a takeaway shop, but if it's all in Bain Marie's, it just doesn't have the same appeal. So you have to have some theatre in the in the preparation. Um, and you see the most successful businesses are those that have theatre, and and then you've also but you've also got to balance that with enough seats so that people can actually you can make some money off it. Are there exciting opportunities um, that you see sort of happening that um, can help rejuvenate the industry? Uh, I think there's a big, uh, like I think precincts are probably something that really can help the industry in that you can have an area like where you can share the cost of the actual seating and you can create really great quality food um, without the actual cost of all the labour. The other thing is that you're seeing that the higher end places are still seem they still seem to be doing really well. But it's the, but they are really bringing a lot of theatre into the into the experience. I mean, you look at Botswana Butchery with their you know meat covered in gold. You look at uh, the guys from Elements who have now opened their fourth steakhouse and they're doing all this sort of cooking uh, slicing meat at the table. The Sam Prince guys doing, um, uh, you know, smash guacamole at the table, which I thought was, when I first saw that, I thought, oh, you know, like how exciting is this? But it, the amount of people who 
look at it and just think it's just fantastic is just incredible. So I think you have to have an element of fear. So I think those those in the sort of high-end areas are going to do really well because people really want, are still going to really want that really high-end experience. I mean, it's amazing how many omakase restaurants are opening at the moment. Like just the actual 12-seaters charging a fortune but like just doing really great Japanese omakase. And then the and so on one end the the really um, high end stuff, and then at the bottom end the well not the bottom end the sort of more communal dining I think is going to be the big future. You made the switch from owner operator to helping others get their uh, restaurants up and running. What, what do you love about what you do? I love being still being in the industry, but not having to um, walk home at one o'clock in the morning. I, uh, and and also the the thinking about um, thinking about your call room at one o'clock in the morning or I mean I've got I remember having you know you might have the best business in the world but it you know it's still a, still a possibility you'll get broken into like I got broken into I remember at Moomoo um, Grill a couple of times so you'll get a phone call at two o'clock in the morning and you'll have to go in or you know your cool room. Your cool room will go down. The cool room always seems to go down on a Friday night. I remember actually one time our coffee machine didn't work, and it was New Year's Day. So this was eight o'clock in the morning and New Year's Day, and I had to, I had to basically get my brother-in-law, who was the coffee of a coffee roaster, out of bed, and he was still he was still off his face actually from the night before, and we had to find a coffee machine and put it into the at 10 o'clock in the morning oh my god like and we were both sweating and I don't think we got off the back of the coffee machine until 2.30 in the afternoon so those are the things I don't miss (laughs) but yeah but but that's the great thing about actually being in the because you can be um, I think the hard thing in the hospitality industry is as an owner operator you kind of got to be jack of all trades and really what we say is like you just focus on making the customers happy and we'll help you get them in, you know, because you can't be um, – we probably see new pieces of technology every two or three months coming in to try and to help, um, you know, in the marketing space and you, you need a lot of time to actually understand how it works. And so I think it's – you know, like so. That's that's why I like Darling Crackles because we actually we can help people. Like we can say make mean make meaningful difference, but I don't have to. Um, yeah, I don't have to be there at one o'clock in the morning. Well, Craig, um, it's a, an honour to catch up with you and uh, hear just a tiny bit of your story. Um, please keep in touch, and we'll catch up again soon. All right, look forward to it. Thanks, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.